Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wise, the app that makes managing your money in different currencies easy. With Wise, you can send and spend money internationally at the mid-market exchange rate. No guesswork and no hidden fees. Learn more about how Wise could work for you at wise.com. This is State of Ukraine. I'm Steve Inskeep with NPR's best reporting on a war that is changing the world. There are at least two levels from which you can view the war in Ukraine. One is the high-flying level of world leaders and diplomats. The other is the level of ordinary people caught in a war zone. The world leaders are making news today. U.S. officials announced more sanctions on Russian businesses and individuals. Russia's foreign minister is visiting India, seeking help avoiding Western sanctions. And Russia is trying to get unfriendly European countries to pay for Russian natural gas in rubles instead of other currencies. The Europeans say they won't. To people in the war zone, not much has changed. Some Russian troops have backed away from Kiev, but the danger remains. Alyssa Nadwerny is there and spoke with Elsa Chang. Here in Kiev, we've had air sirens much of the evening tonight, and there were two loud explosions near the center of the city. Officials haven't released information on what was hit yet, but multiple explosions were reported here Tuesday night and into the early hours of, of Wednesday. Ukrainian officials are echoing what Western intelligence has said. Major Volodymyr Fitya, a spokesperson for Ukraine's Ground Forces Command, told us this today. He's saying there is no retreat. Certain divisions have left because they've lost their military effectiveness. We've damaged them a great deal, and others are coming in their place. And I understand that, Alyssa, you have been out and about talking to people in Kyiv before the sirens. What did you find walking around there? So Kyiv is a city that's still mostly empty. It's estimated that half the population has left. And overwhelmingly, the people that we do find, you know, they say they don't trust Russian promises. They're anticipating this war to last a while. And yet there's also a sense that this is the new normal. You know, people are moving out of the shelters and back into their apartments. And some who left Kyiv are trickling back in. Sitting outside a coffee shop in a residential neighborhood near the city center, I find Alex Mikolenko. I'm personally not afraid. Alex came back to Kyiv a week ago. Oh, it was just a feeling that I have to come back. When the war started, he fled the city, went west, volunteered. But he's come back because it's felt safer. His friends, who also fled, keep asking him if they should come back too. It's a personal decision, he says. But he also tells them this. You can hear the artillery working on the outskirts of Kyiv, but in general, well, people are nervous, but they still continue to live their lives. The city is still a shadow of itself right now, he says, but things are starting to open up. All the tables outside the cafe are full. Down the street, city workers are moving a barricade of tires on a side street so civilians can drive through. This is the sound of life coming back. You know? uh, the uh, municipal services are working. Dogs are outside. People are drinking coffee. The war is not about stopping the living, right? The war is about redirecting your resources to fight the invaders. But it doesn't mean that you have to stop your life. Mama. It's been a bit harder to adapt to this new normal for Vlada and her two-year-old daughter, Alina. She's worried she's not being a good parent because she made the decision to stay in Kyiv. It was a hard decision. Leaving was scary, but so 
is staying. She tells me they spent the first several days of the war down in the subway and then in a shelter. Now they're back in their apartment. Sheltering in a corridor when the air alarms go off. When little Alina hears the explosions, she says, boom. She thinks it's a game, Vlada says. She's too young to understand what's going on. Vlada and her husband, they don't tell Alina otherwise. They don't want to mess with her mental health. They're on their way now to a shop to get some candy for Alina but they won't stay away from the apartment too long. Vlada says she still doesn't feel safe, but where should they go? This is their home. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News, Kyiv. Now let's hear from a neighbor of Ukraine. Moldova is a former Soviet republic like Ukraine. It's not in NATO, like Ukraine, and not part of the European Union, like Ukraine. As you can imagine, they're watching this war closely. NPR's Frank Langfit reports from Moldova's capital, Chisinau. Before dawn on February 24th, Ewan Manole, a human rights lawyer here in Chisinau, got a phone call. A colleague told him, open your window. Outside, Manole could hear the sound of Russian missiles exploding in the distance. My first thoughts was that uh, in Transnistria something started, or Moldova, this part of Moldova, was attacked. Were you scared? Everybody is scared. If someone will tell you he's not scared, he will lie. Manoli's referring to Transnistria, a separatist region of Moldova. Transnistria is home to about 1,500 Russian troops, at least 8,000 Transnistrian soldiers, and has been under effective Russian control since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Manoli has won dozens of cases against Russia over human rights abuses in Transnistria. He was afraid if Russian troops invaded Moldova, they'd detain him. We are persona non grata in Transnistria. We have criminal cases against us. We prepared our luggages to be able to leave. In fact, the explosions Manole heard came from over the border in Ukraine. But people here feared Russia might invade because of the way President Vladimir Putin views some former Soviet republics. Alexandru Flanka served as a deputy prime minister in Moldova's government. Putin's global ambition is to rebuild in some shape or form uh, the Soviet Union. And Flanka says the Russian leader sees a nation such as Moldova, or Ukraine for that matter, as not really legitimate. A country that accidentally became a country because of what he called the greatest geopolitical catastrophe in history, the collapse of the Soviet Union. So to Putin, countries like Moldova, the Baltic states, and even Poland, they're not nations that have a right to be sovereign countries. Which helps explain why people in Moldova, which is just slightly larger than Maryland, feel nervous. Analysts here say Putin might prefer Moldova as a pro-Moscow buffer state between an expanded Russia and NATO. Of course, Russian troops have since become bogged down in Ukraine and seem much less of a threat at the moment to neighboring countries. Moldovans are breathing more easily these days. But the war next door emphasizes the country's precarious position. Moldova's maintained a policy of neutrality to protect itself and not antagonize Russia. 
But Igor Grosu, Speaker of Moldova's parliament, says that policy isn't enough. And his country now needs security guarantees from big nations. I think the notion of neutrality in connection to guarantees will be dramatically changed. Does neutrality work? I'm saying that in the form that it's been practiced until now, it does not function. And therefore, the new system of guarantees that the great powers must create a consolidated system, because otherwise, in the current form, it's very vulnerable. Grosu didn't go into detail, but Julian Groza did. Groza runs the Institute for European Policies and Reforms, a think tank. He thinks the best way to protect Moldova is to develop an even closer relationship with Europe. There are a lot of things that both uh, EU member states or NATO member states can do to help us. Does that mean sending you weapons? Not only weapons, it's about all chain of of everything which is linked to defense capabilities. I mean, medical, uh, infrastructure, training, uh, equipment, uh, everything. Professionalizing our army. An army with about 6,000 troops and not a single tank. But Moldova may be too small to survive on its own. Yuri Renitsa is a former Moldovan ambassador to NATO. His solution? Reunify with neighboring Romania, which is a member of the EU and NATO. We do have very same language, culture, everything. There are no differences. This might be, from my point of view, the best choice. You are joining immediately EU and the most important, NATO. you under NATO umbrella. Moldova used to be a part of Romania. That ended in 1940 when Moldova was occupied by Russia. But reunification faces big hurdles. Only 44% of Moldovans support it, according to a recent poll. And Russia would certainly object if Moldova tried to reunify with Romania, a NATO ally. A third option for Moldova, continue to stay neutral and try not to provoke Russia. Jan Kiku recently served as Moldova's prime minister. I don't think that we need to buy more weapons to fight Russia. That's clear. And also, many of Moldovans consider that some countries and neighbors of the Russia became somehow interesting for NATO. This is the reason why Russia at least formally launched this war. And Kiku says... It's naive to think other nations will come to the aid of a small country like Moldova. And what he says is essentially a major contest between Russia and the United States. Let's put it bluntly. Nobody will protect us. The biggest country in Europe, and by the way, the richest one considering its natural resources, Ukraine, I mean, became a battlefield between the large geopolitical powers. That's the reality. It is exactly what happens Back in, let's say, in Korea, Vietnam, or or Syria. Russia's leverage over Moldova goes beyond its troops in Transnistria. Moldova, which is landlocked, relies on Russia for 100% of its natural gas, which is something that many here, including the government, says has to change. Sergei Tofalot is an energy analyst. We need to convince our society, which is uh, very divided among pro-Russians and pro-Europeans, that relying on Russian gas... This is not normal. It's like funding the Russian army who kills Ukrainians, which fight for our independence. Tofalot says developing new energy suppliers won't be easy, given the high cost these days, which is especially hard for Europe's poorest nation. But he says it's a price Moldova must pay for its own security. Frank Langford, NPR News, Chisinau. 
And this is State of Ukraine from NPR News, NPR's best reporting on a war that is changing the world. Sean Saldana produced and Kelly Dickens and Catherine Laidlaw edited. I'm Steve Inskeep. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the platform for database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive at oracle.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Warby Parker. Their glasses start at $95, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Try five pairs of frames at home for free. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.